Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Aaron Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, Sofanova Partners is the latest firm to see private equity interests. What's next for the European VC? The latest in BioCentury's translational paradise, the distillery. Standout data from Caribou showcases its CRISPR technology. And pharma on the hot seat to sell or not to sell to Russia. But first, BioCentury this week is brought to you by MSD. MSD has a strong history of success in translating cutting-edge research into life-saving medical breakthroughs. The company's European Innovation Hub, located in London, is embedded in one of Europe's key scientific communities to drive engagement with local academia, biotech, peer pharma, and venture capitalists. The hub includes a business development and licensing team, clinical teams, and the pharma's UK Discovery Research Center. MSD is also known as Merck and Co. Incorporated, located in Kenilworth, New Jersey, in the US. For more information, visit msd.com slash licensing. Stephen, we've just seen this morning a pretty big deal from one of Europe's standout VC firms, Sofanova Partners. Tell us a bit about the deal and why they did it. Sure, Jeff. Thanks. Yeah. So Sofanova Partners, they're in their 50th year as a independent firm, and they really wanted to maintain that independence. Spoke to Antoine Papernick, their managing partner, and basically he said that they, following the Blackstone acquisition of Claris Ventures, which was in 2018, was sort of one of the first kind of major private equity takeouts of a life science VC that we'd seen. They anticipated that there would be this growing interest in sort of tide of private equity, of these really huge private equity um, players wanting to come into life sciences space, and so they they actually took a proactive stance on it. Rather than waiting to field incoming requests, they started their own dialogue about two years ago to see what sort of interest they would get. But with the express idea that A, they were not looking to sell, they were looking to partner, and B, they were really looking for someone who could really help them drive their growth. And so the result was they met with Apollo and ended up selling a 20% stake in the managing firm to Apollo. And that came with up to uh, 1 billion euros of uh, commitments to participate in future funds. A few other big VC firms have done something similar. How does this differ from, say, LSP's deal that we saw, um, I guess, a few months back now? That's right. Yep, We've had sort of two recent ones. So EQT acquired uh, LSP, a few acronyms there. And uh, then more recently, Carlisle uh, acquired Abingworth. Those were full-on acquisitions where they're bringing the life sciences firms in-house to be a life sciences sort of specialist. The similarities, I would say, is one of the drivers for those deals was that the life science teams essentially get access to this huge investor relations apparatus at these private equity firms. So they have you know, hundreds of individuals who specialize in 
finding LPs, finding, you know, raising money for new funds, these sorts of things. Whereas typically at a life sciences firm, you might have one or two folks that sort of specialize in that. So it basically takes a lot of that fundraising, I guess, pressure off of the investment teams. It's not exactly the same for Sophie Nova, but what it does give them is it gives them someone who can open the door or, you know, get people on the phone to talk to Sophie Nova about future funds. So I think Antoine expects this could really open up a lot more opportunities for them when it comes to new LPs, you know, whether that's sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, maybe folks that previously wouldn't have looked at being an investor here. But with Apollo being an LP now going forward, people might be more open to, you know, being a co-investor alongside them. Now, I know that uh, Apollo is a big player in credit. They also have a life sciences real estate platform. Do these signal areas that Sofanova partners will now be getting into? Um, maybe, <laughs> I think is the answer. Um, so one thing that Antoine, if anyone who knows Antoine, he is by no means a tight-lipped person. But in this instance, he was not wanting to be all that revealing of exactly what they're going to be building in collaboration with Apollo. But he did point to the fact that they're big in credit and debt and these sorts of you know structured financing facilities that we've talked on this pod before about companies looking at things beyond equity as ways to raise capital to fund your companies. And he said that whether Sophie Nova does something itself or whether they're able to give their portfolio companies access to these debt facilities would be one way to go. Or they have this life science uh, real estate platform. So that might be something that they'd be able to partner with portfolio companies on to allow them to build new labs or new spaces. We just had a couple of stories looking at Sofanova Partners' role in Italy in particular, how they've been behind a lot of the Series A's there. And I did a story on Italian innovators from the distillery, and there was a lot of cross-pollination there with Sofanova Partners getting behind some of the um, academics there. I'm curious how you think this partnership could impact the European ecosystem and Italy in particular. So he was very careful to say that this 1 billion of commitments, it's not as if Apollo was going to be dumping 500 million into a new fund on top of everything else. So I don't think we're going to see Sophie Nova raising a billion plus fund at a go and just having this huge amount of capital to deploy. I think they're going to be much more, as he said, sort of in line with what other LPs would be putting into the fund. So you're not going to see this huge wave of capital, I don't think, coming into that early stage space, but it will be larger. I think there will be for more companies, you'll have probably bigger checks looking to deploy bigger checks. So in that instance, I guess it remains to be seen whether Apollo will get involved in some of those specific Italian funds like the Telefon Fund or in BioVelocita. But if they do, you know, you could see them bringing firepower that we just haven't seen in Italy, right? I think the largest Series A we've seen there was a recent one done that I think was 28 million euros or something like that, which relative to the rest of Europe is, you know, not very big. All right. Thanks for that, Stephen. Uh, I'd like to turn to Karen now to bring us the latest in translational news. Karen, what's on tap in the distillery? Well, uh, the distillery is our sampling of the scientific literature coming out of academic labs that represents new translational opportunities, either because they're identifying a new target biology, for example, for a disease, or perhaps a new technology way to get at uh, known biology. So I wanted to highlight a paper that is more of an example of the latter. 
This was a paper from the labs of Guangping Gao at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and also uh, Dan Wang, also from uh, UMass. And they developed a way to deliver as a gene therapy an engineered suppressor tRNA that could enable read-through of mRNA transcripts that have disease-causing nonsense mutations. And they did this with proof of concept in an animal model of MPS1, that's mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, which is caused by having a, a nonsense mutation, which basically cuts off expression of a gene midway in a key gene IDUA. Basically, what this does, as you may remember, uh, tRNAs are responsible for bringing amino acids to mRNA transcripts. And basically, they're the link between the mRNA instructions and the amino acid residues that link up to make protein. So they're really at that translation interface of mRNA to protein. And basically, they engineered Starting with some natural tRNAs, they optimized those to enable basically that they could pair with that stop codon, but keep on reading through it in order to rescue expression of the gene that's deficient in the disease. It's something where there's potentially an application for um, other diseases caused by uh, nonsense mutations, and they have a patent application filed the licensing status was not available, but it's definitely an interesting space that I look forward to seeing more of. I know we're seeing a few new companies emerge in the tRNA space. And I think this is an interesting expansion on that because it sounds like this would be a gene therapy that would deliver the tRNA and have possibly a permanent effect. Whereas what I think some of the companies are working on is an RNA technology. Yeah, it'll be pretty interesting. Here in at least these mouse models, they did an AV9 vector that was encoding two copies of the suppressor tRNA, so functioning more as a gene therapy. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works versus an RNA delivery approach. All right, let's turn to the clinic. Last week, we saw the first clinical data from Caribou's CRISPR-based gene editing platform. What did you learn, Lauren? So this was the first clinical readout from Caribou's platform. The company saw a 100% response rate in the first five patients who were treated with their CRISPR-edited allogeneic CAR T-cell therapy. This was a very small number of patients. It's a very early readout. We know responses tend to fall as trials progress, and we know that durability is the big issue for allogeneic cell therapies for cancer. So it's too early to tell how long this effect will last, but I think at the very least, this was a, a pretty big step in the right direction for the modality. You know, I mentioned the durability was the issue, but we've seen some clinical data, some early response rate data for other allogeneic CAR T-cell therapies, and those response rates haven't really been on par with the patient-specific autologous CAR Ts. So even just thinking about the response rates, something has improved here. What differentiates Caribou's platform is that they've used CRISPR to knock out PD-1, in addition to the edits that are needed to make the cells allogeneic. When I spoke with the CEO, Rachel Horowitz, last week, she explained that the goal is to prevent the cells from becoming exhausted. So even though you're engineering the T cells to be allogeneic and to evade the immune response to some extent, 
they're still eliminated pretty quickly. And she says the goal of this strategy is to try to make the most of the cells while you have them. She believes that addressing the exhaustion issue is one way to do that. I also should mention that this was the lowest dose cohort from the trial, which is it also makes it pretty exciting. They use a very small number of cells relative to what some other companies have done. They did see one dose limiting toxicity, but they're cleared to, to go for a higher dose and they'll move on to the second dose cohort next. Lauren, I know there are a couple other CRISPR uh, or, or sort of base editing companies that are also doing their own forms of CAR-T. Are we seeing similar sort of strategies from them as well? Are we seeing PD-1 knockouts or any other checkpoint knockouts from them as well? I believe this is the first one to read out in the clinic, but there are a lot of companies that are starting to experiment with knocking out PD-1, or I think they're possibly doing TIGIT. Um, a couple different checkpoint targets with the same goal of addressing this exhaustion issue. Is there any reason to think that if you knock out multiple, I'm just wondering like how much you knock out, if there could be some sort of cumulative effect when it comes to durability or whether you kind of reach a point to where maybe one or two knockouts is as far as you could get. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I I asked her why they, they chose to knock out PD-1 and not additional checkpoint receptors or, or not a different one. And, and she mentioned that PD-L1 is highly expressed on, on these tumor types. And also, it's just a target that has really stood out, as we saw in sort of last week's data low. The TIGIT story isn't panning out as, as people had hoped. Um, so I, I don't know the answer to that. I guess we'll see as, as we get data from the other programs. All right, and we also saw some data from CRISPR therapeutics last week. What did those data show us? They also presented data for an allogeneic CAR T cell therapy. We've seen their CD19 CAR T data before, and this one was for T cell cancers, which I think is pretty interesting because we've we've been following sort of an increase in innovation in the T cell cancer space. There's been so much activity in hematological malignancies, but it's been so focused on the B-cell lymphomas and T-cell malignancies have just been harder. So the data, you know, wasn't 100% response rates, but I think it was around 70% in, in this population. They had a CD70 targeted CAR T-cell therapy. It's another example, I think, of where CRISPR-Cas9 technology has the potential to help address what's been a big issue in the field. So the problem with, with applying CAR-Ts to this subtype of hematological malignancies is finding the right targets and engineering the cells in a way that you can get selective activity for the T-cell cancers without killing the T-cell therapies, which often express the same targets as the cancer cells you're trying to kill, and without causing toxicities associated with knocking out all of a patient's healthy T-cells. Again, no durability data. These are very early, but encouraging to see that a CAR T-cell therapy can work in this type of cancer. You know, patients are responding. And this follows a clinical hold for a program that Legend Biotech had for a CAR T-cell against a different target in T-cell cancer. And Lauren, didn't we see some other data? We did. All, all of this uh, CAR T-cell data has come at the uh, European ah, yes. Hematology Association meeting. Uh, the abstracts dropped last week and the meeting will be in June. But Autolis is also going after T-cell cancers with their allogeneic CAR T-cell therapy. And the data were really early. We, we saw some data on complete metabolic response, which is, is a imaging 
estimate of responses. And so they have their own program against a different target, which is actually very interesting concept behind that. And we wrote about that last week. Uh, Also looks encouraging. Excellent. Well, the caribou story and the CRISPR story are up on our website, biocentry.com. You'll also find Stephen Sofin of a partner's story there. And of course, the distillery and our wonderful distillery dashboard. Let's turn to the Ukraine crisis. Steve, you've been following the impact of the Ukraine war on the global life sciences industry right from the start, in particular, the impact on patients in the Ukraine and in Russia. Biopharma companies are in a really tough spot right now. They're being forced to choose between getting their therapies to their patients in Russia while also weighing whether or not to support the boycott on selling into Russia. What have you found out? I know you spoke to a couple of different companies last week about the choices that they have made. Yeah, so I, I talked to a bunch of companies. My story is online on our website, and it's it's open access. So if anybody's listening to this who isn't a BioCentury subscriber wants to read it, you can do so. Basically, medicines are exempt from sanctions. So companies are on their own. They have to make their own decisions about whether and how much they're going to engage with Russia. There are a lot of biopharmaceutical companies that are donating drugs and money to help people in Ukraine and those displaced by the war. Most of the biopharmaceutical companies have decided to stop sales of non-essential drugs like Botox to Russia while maintaining shipments of essential drugs. They've stopped marketing in Russia, and many have paused new enrollments in clinical trials and said they won't start new trials in Russia. Several companies are promising to donate all the profits from their sales in Russia to humanitarian assistance in Ukraine. But they're still under pressure, including from some in the industry, to stop all sales to Russia. Three biotech CEOs, John Mariganori, the former founding CEO of Alnylam and a member of a lot of biotech boards now, Jeremy Levin uh, at Ovid Therapeutics, former CEO of Teva, and Ted Love, a longtime industry veteran who is the CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, along with the ethicist Art Kaplan, all told me that they believe that it's unethical for drug companies to provide even life-saving drugs to Russia. They say that the harm to civilians caused by withholding drugs will weaken Putin's hold on power and shorten the war. Bayer told me that they have a duty to help patients wherever they are, and that cutting off Russia would needlessly add to suffering. Other drug companies said the same thing to me, either in statements or on the websites or in interviews. Experts on the Russian economy said that cutting off drug sales at a time when Europeans are buying huge amounts of Russian gas and oil would be insignificant. And people in Russia and Russians who have left, including opponents of Putin, told me that the idea that ordinary civilians, especially those who are ill and need imported drugs, can have any impact on Putin or the war is complete nonsense. A military ethicist, I think, had one of the more powerful arguments. She explained um, her argument this way. She said, soldiers can't target civilians. Soldiers can't intimidate civilians or terrorize them. And soldiers can't, for example, burn a a farmer's field in the hope that starving civilians are going to get mad and overthrow their own government. And she said that pharma companies shouldn't be able to do anything that a soldier can't do in battle. And in fact, they should probably be able to do much less. One other final thing that really struck me, the companies say that they're they're not going to do any more clinical trials in Russia. And I think that a lot of people think that doing clinical trials is, is something that's kind of optional. It certainly is. Companies make decisions for commercial reasons all the time about where they're going to do clinical trials. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have any impact. 
I spoke with a company, a German company called Miltenyi Biotech. They've stopped sending viral vectors and other supplies that a Russian pediatric cancer clinic uses to perform CAR-T therapies. They justified this because CAR-T is considered investigational in Russia. On that Russian clinic has been performing 20 or 30 CAR-T therapies a year. And other clinics in Russia relied on Miltenyi's technology to do CAR-T therapies for adults. These CAR-T therapies are only conducted on children and adults who have no other options. There's a good chance that CAR-T therapy is going to save their lives and an almost certainty that if they don't receive CAR-T therapy, they're going to die. So no one has explained to me how the avoidable deaths of these children from cancer, because they haven't received CAR-T therapies, is going to shorten the war by a nanosecond. Thanks for that, Steve. I know you've been talking to a lot of people, and it's good to know that you've got your ear to the ground in Russia and in Ukraine. It's just an awful position for patients on either side of this conflict to be in. All right. Staying with Europe, BioCentury's 22nd Bioequity Europe Conference is on now. It's in person, but we also have digital access passes. Go to bioequityeurope.com. A digital pass gives you access to content for 30 days. You'll also get BioCentury's second annual scene setter report, McKinsey's bioequity conference report, and complimentary access to BioCentury's BCIQ database. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group is holding its Symphony for Science 2022 on May 23rd. It benefits STEM literacy and education for girls and gender expansive youth. Tickets are on sale now at bso.org slash events slash symphony dash four dash science. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Thanks for tuning in.